All right. Well, good morning, Doxa. Uh, I'm grateful to get to be here. My name is Rudy Hartman. Uh, I get to be on staff here with Doxa Church, working specifically with our college students, which means I am particularly sad this week because it does mean that a great deal of our seniors who have been incredible um, are graduating and are going. So Tyler, thank you so much for sharing that, man. That was a gift to, to us. I'm just really, really grateful. Um, well, we're continuing our trek through the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 5. I'll meet you at verse 1 here in just a, a moment. Um, but before we get there, I'll, I'll catch up to you. Uh, every time I think about February 4th, 2018, um, I, I have this a specific memory come to mind around 7.30 in the morning on that Sunday, and it's that my palms were sweating. Have you ever had that happen? Like, I played sports, and so, like, I know what it's like for my palms to sweat because I'm running or moving aggressively. Like, like I, I get that. Um, I'd never, I don't remember it ever having happened simply because I was feeling like a lot of emotion all at, at once. But that's exactly what was going on that morning as I kept wiping my palms on like the outside of my pants, brushing against the box that was in my front left pocket that had my grandmother's engagement ring in it that I was about to attempt to give <laughs> and did end up giving to, to my now wife Molly that morning. All of the engaged and married men in the room will know exactly what I'm talking about here. But when I tell you that I was single-minded that morning, like, like I, um, I had a plan for, okay, how will my parents watch? Okay, here's a live stream. Who will take pictures? This person. All the T's crossed and the, di- I, I, the dies audited. I did that in first. I can't stop. And the I's dotted, right? And I, I just, I, I had everything in lockstep. But honestly, I felt like there was just one thing that I was focused on, one thing that I was attending to, um, I had one objective that that, that morning, and it was to propose to Molly, to get on one knee, give her the ring, and ask her a question that would change the direction of both of our lives. It went well, by the way, uh, five years this August, so grateful for that. Okay, so there's just, (laughs) there's some of you have been like married longer than I've been alive, so thank you. Uh, but um, But there's just something about having an objective Like not an idea or not a thought, not like a half-baked plan or kind of a loose trajectory, but an objective, clear, articulated, directed, an objective. You've, You've probably had this experience before, an objective with your family, with some friends at your place of work, an objective if you looked at like your health, just somewhere you're like, I'm going there. You know that when you have an objective, you realize that what you need to do gets real clear real quick. And that's precisely what we actually walk into this morning in the text. Uh, Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20 is a portrait in the gospel of Mark that gives us another angle on the objective of Jesus that he actually said way back in Mark chapter 1, and we've been seeing work itself out uh, message after message, week after week, text after text. Mark 1 verses 14 through 15 say, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, which is the good news. It's the good news that Jesus is bringing, that there is a way to God in the wilderness of the world for all people in all places to be in the kingdom to turn from our own way and and actually from our sin and believe in the good news, this gospel that God saves sinners through Christ. 
This is the objective of Jesus on display. And simply put, note takers, this can be the top of your page. This is where we're going to run off from today in the text. Here's the objective of Jesus. It's that all people in all places would be saved. It's the objective of Jesus across the board. And we're in kind of an odd story this morning. We'll, we'll, we'll flesh it out as we get along. But in this story, there's some crucial aspects of that objective put on display that should significantly change the way that we see people who are around us and the way that we move towards them. So Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. I hope that was enough time for you to get there. We're going to hop right into the text. If the word doesn't do the work, then the work won't get done. So let's hop right in. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, the country of the Gerasenes. Stop. Just one verse for right now, because um, we got to set the stage for where we're going and where we're at in this story. Out of the gate, this is one sentence that we need to understand the geography and the significance of. Jesus, you'll remember, has been in Capernaum. He's been in the region of Galilee to this point in the gospel. This region that is a part of ethnically Jewish territory. So, so you see that Jesus regularly enters synagogues to teach there. He's teaching, he's healing, he's liberating teaching in parables about the kingdom of God, and he's primarily been doing it in one region that has a majority culture made up of Jewish men and Jewish women. But now we find him in the country or the region of the Gerasenes, or maybe your Bible translates that, the Gadarenes. However, this place is across the Sea of Galilee. You remember last week, they crossed the sea, they go across to the other side from this primarily Jewish territory to a region called the Decapolis, which is a group of 10 cities that made up that region. Perhaps uh, the shore that they came to was Gergasa or Kesha, towns near the shore in that region. In any case, there is a significant difference between where Jesus has been and where Jesus is now. He has primarily been with Jewish men and women, and now he isn't. He's in what would be called a Gentile region. It would have been a place that most of the people that followed him, the people who were around him, his disciples, would have generally avoided for fear of becoming ceremonially unclean through cultural association. And Jesus has taken them right there across a dangerous journey in the sea at night, right into this region, right to this place, right as we're going to see to this person. And we've got to look at the text and ask, why? Like, why is that? We ask why, not perhaps because you read the text and asked why, but because the people who originally heard this text and the disciples who are there with Jesus are asking why. Why are you there, Jesus? Why are we here, Jesus? Well, to recall the objective of Jesus Christ that all people from all places would be saved, that answers their question. They're there because that region is a part of the all people in all places. Not just some people, not just some places, not some groups, all groups. The Old Testament, if I can just do a little bit, of, I'll, I'll prove my work here. The, the Old Testament actually points to this. In the Exodus, it is a mixed group that actually goes out with the liberated Hebrew men and women as Moses leads the people out. As Jonah goes across the sea that we saw last week, as he goes across the sea and comes to Nineveh, he is not coming to a Jewish region. He is coming to the capital of Assyria, the enemy of the people of, of Israel at that time. Uh, Isaiah looks ahead to the mountain of the Lord, the eternity that is coming, this, this feast with God for eternity for those who have life in Christ at the end of days. And he writes in Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8, on this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for 
all the people a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the people, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. And so Jesus goes to the other side. Because not just some people are made in the image of God, doxa, all the people are made in the image of God. Because not just some people have sinned and need a savior, all people have sinned and need a savior to swallow up the death that this sin deserves. Because Jesus won't die on a cross and raise from the grave just to save some people. He did it so that he would save all the people who would come and put their trust in him. Because in Romans, Paul doesn't say one church for the Gentiles over here and one church for the Jews over here. He says in Romans 15 that the church is to have harmony with one another and glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and just as we just sang, with one voice. Because when John relates what he saw at the throne of God in the book of Revelation, it isn't just some tongues or some tribes or some people or some nations, but every tribe, every tongue, every group of people, and every nation that's at the throne of God worshiping him for eternity to come. Jesus is, that's, yes, okay, Jesus is crossing, Jesus is crossing the sea is a violent blow against the divisive ethnocentricity that marked this region and people at this time, just as it is a mark of, and a witness against any modern ideology that elevates any singular ethnicity to a place of supremacy over other people, such as the supremacist ideology that fueled racist, wicked remarks made in a video against black men and women this week on the campus of UW-Madison. Now, there is a division in the gospel. Please don't get me twisted here. But the division of the gospel is not whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. The division is not on ethnicity. It is on eternity. Are you in Christ or aren't you? Are you in the new family, the new people of the kingdom that Christ forms or not? Ephesians 2 verses 13 and 14 lay it out like this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. We are joined to Christ and joined to one another to make one family of God by the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. This is the objective of Jesus, that all people from all places would be saved. So he goes to the other side. He goes to the Gentiles. He goes to the region of the Gerasenes, and he's met with some intense opposition for doing so. As if the raging sea and storm from last week at the end of Mark 4 weren't enough, check this out, verses 2 through 5. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is one of the most graphic and disturbing and sad images of um, the demonic oppression that we see in the gospel of Mark. This man is isolated. He's among the uncleanliness of death in the tombs. He's inexplicably strong and yet is completely bound by this demon, crying out and cutting himself. This is an image of precisely what our true enemy wants to be the condition of every breathing person, every image bearer of God that we would be isolated, bound, crying out, harming ourselves. Jesus has an objective. 
but so too does the true enemy of our soul. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus breaks it down in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full or have it in abundance. We see the objective of Jesus, but we also here see the objective of the enemy, of the demonic on display. How much had been stolen from this man? What parts of him had been crushed and killed? Had he lost a family? Had he lost, how many friends, what relationship, what had he lost because of what was happening to him? How much had been destroyed? Jesus comes to this shore and tolerates none of it because he has come so that all people in all places might be saved and might know that he offers this life in his kingdom. Jesus is opposed, but the opposition has proven to be nothing compared to him. Look at verses six through eight. And when he saw Jesus from afar, the man ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I, I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus sets foot on the shore, and the demon cannot help but move and run in the man to him and bow. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Don't torment me. Okay, why does the demon beg Jesus? The demon begs Jesus because he knows who Jesus is. We saw it last week. This demon knows the authority that Jesus has and that he walks in. Jesus rolls up on him and says, get out of that man. Why? Because that man is a part of the all people in all places that Christ has come to save. He cannot save something that he is stronger than. So he exemplifies clearly that he is stronger than any demon, any force, any death. He's stronger than it is. He is stronger and the demon knows it. So the only option that this creature has is to kneel. The only option is to beg. What do you have to do with me? Is the creature basically saying, what are you doing here? You're the Jewish Messiah. You're supposed to stay on that side of the sea. You're not supposed to be here. But we know better. Jesus has crossed the sea to the other side to do exactly what Scripture said he would. All people, all places, save. Watch this interaction, verses 9 through 13. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. He gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. Cool. Um, I wish I had time to get into the Greek and the rhetoric here. I don't have time to draw the ironic tone of Rome, the subtle allusions in the text, the fact that the original hearers were likely snickering and laughing at this point, actually, in the text. You could look at what Jesus has done to the enemy. But I do have to point this out. The demon runs to Jesus, kneels, begs, and says his name, Jesus, son of the most high God. And then he says, did you catch this? He says, I adjure you. The demon is trying to command Jesus to leave his territory. This is a common exorcist practice of the time, the idea that having a name gave you authority to command whoever that was or whatever was going on. But we actually see something else. Jesus looks at this demon and says, you know my name, but who are you? We see the immensity of Jesus' authority on display. He's like, yeah, I'm the son of God. I'm the son of the most high God. But who are you? Compared to me, I don't even know who you are. 
This is the immensity of Jesus. He rose up on a foreign nation as a declaration that he'll come to reach all people. He is opposed, and just like he dismissed the wind and the waves, he dismisses this demon. Dismisses them into the pigs. They charge into the water. Again, without getting too much into the various interpretations of what this is, Roman illusions, a spiritual worldview that sees the deep as something other than what we would see it as simply a body of water, unclean animals. Let's consider three possibilities incorporating the three characters that we see, Jesus, the pigs, and the demons. So one idea would be to try to think that Jesus made the pigs run into the water. That, frankly, makes no interpretive sense along with this text next. Um, the, the pigs, perhaps are demon-possessed and what it did to this man in driving him mad and into isolation, into the tombs and cutting himself, harming himself, it does to them. And their physiological, neurological limitations can't handle it, and so they charge into the deep. Possible. Third, perhaps the demon actually does what it does. Doesn't want Jesus to bring together all people in himself. Doesn't want people from all places to come into the kingdom of God to be saved by Jesus. So it sought to destroy the creation of God and simultaneously make a scene that would lead to division, which is precisely what happens. In verses 14 through 17, it's what we see. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. These pig watchers, these interesting, fun fact, they're called swine herders, uh, they, they run off. Now, they were somewhere within eyeshot of Jesus, the disciples, and the man who is demonized and dangerous. They see from afar this man run, this, as the boat pulls up and Jesus gets out, this man runs up to the shore. There's some sort of interaction, something that goes on. And then all of a sudden, they watch all their pigs run into the water. That's uh, incredibly chaotic. They, they, they themselves then run away. They freak out, run home, bring people back because they've seen total chaos and come back to an entirely unexpected scene. They walk up to Jesus with the man, the man who was naked and cut. The image of God, unclean and undignified, is clothed, is dignified, is cleansed, is restored. He's in his right mind. He's been healed. He's sober-minded. And we see yet again, just as Jesus spoke to the chaos of the storm and brought calm. He brings calm to the absolute chaos in this person. And it is unnerving for the people to see what kind of a man can do this. So they beg him to go and Jesus goes. Now this isn't the end of the story, but I want to pause here for a moment and point out a few things that I think we need to take away from this portrait in the life of Jesus. Three things, note takers, these are, these are just three quick points. First, Jesus shows us that we have a true enemy and it's not the person in front of us. Now again, to remember from last week, a spiritual worldview of the age is what is being seen and, and heard in the interpretive and understanding of what's going on in front of them. A spiritual worldview is occurring in this passage and being seen in this passage, which is much different than the worldview that many of us hold today, which is generally some form of a materialistic worldview. I'm not saying you're a materialistic person. I'm saying it is likely that because you are existing after the 18th century in like the West, that you have been influenced by materialistic culture. It is a young view holistically in like the scope of time, but it is the kind of dominating present view. 
Our majority understanding is that the physical, the tangible, uh, what the material is the most real, which is often why the immaterial, non-physical things of life often trip us up so significantly. Their worldview would have been that the immaterial, the invisible, the non-physical, the spiritual realities of life weren't just real, but they were central. They were important. That's the perspective they have as they watch Jesus engaging with the man and the demon. And as Jesus makes it clear who the true enemy is here, it's not the man, it's the demon. The, the demon acts in direct opposition to Jesus in an effort to keep at least two things from happening. One, to keep the gospel of the kingdom of God from spreading. And two, to keep division between two groups of people. That's what the enemy does. Now, a curious question here might arise because you might have some sort of kind of understanding, either you've been in church for a long time or you've studied the text or whatever it might be, and you might say, wait a minute, Rudy, you're using the word enemy. Doesn't our sin actually make us enemies of God? Well, yeah. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, for if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? We make ourselves enemies of God due to our sin. And as we sin against one another, we become enemies also of one another. This means that when evil things happen, we don't excuse it and look around the corner for demonic influences. We can actually place the weight of that wickedness squarely on the shoulders of the one who is chosen to do a wicked thing. There is culpability for sin of every scale, and this sin worked out puts us in opposition with God and with others. But there is, Doxa, astounding news. Christ suffers and dies not for people who deserve salvation, but precisely for people who don't. That's why he came, so that through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, we who were enemies of God might be reconciled to God and be saved. This is the grace and the power of God. Every Christian was once an enemy of God in our sin and are now forgiven, made righteous before God by Christ, and made a part of his family through salvation offered by Christ. The man in this story, do not get it twisted, is a part of the objective of Jesus, that all people in all places would be saved. Just like this man needed to be freed. Every single one of us need to be forgiven. Jesus saves this man from a life of death and destruction and oppression, and he can save us from destruction, oppression, and the death that is the result presently and ultimately of our sin. He saves, and that is a blow dealt to the true enemy, that the man is not destroyed, but the man is freed, is liberated, is saved by Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that we don't act in enmity towards other people, we do. I'm not saying other people don't act in enmity towards other people. They do. I'm not saying this is the only enemy. I'm saying that Jesus points out the spiritual reality behind the enemy, of the enemy behind all enemies. He points out the true enemy. I mean what the scripture calls the adversary. 1 Peter 1.5 calls him the adversary. You're the adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's the true enemy of this text this morning. This is the adversary, the devil and his demons seeking someone to devour. Now, before you make that more like Hollywood, let me bring it into the text. Here's what it looks like. It looks like directly or indirectly working with the objective of fueling destruction and death of people made in the image of God, of slowing the movement of the gospel, and maintaining division between people. It's the work of the devil 
to devour, directly working against and influencing away from the objective of Jesus. That's who Jesus addresses, dominates, and dismisses, not the man in front of him. This encounter with Jesus happens in a moment, and the result is dramatic for both the man and for the demon, but not in the same way. The demon is addressed, dominated, and dismissed. The man is with Jesus, is clothed, dignified, in his right mind. Jesus shows who the true enemy is, and it's not the person in front of him. It's not the person in front of us. I do wonder if we know who our true enemy is sometimes. Or if we're tempted at times to look at groups of people or individuals, and instead of seeing a person, we see instead an idea. Instead of seeing a person, we see a breathing monolithic expression of a worldview and choose to write them off. We look at people and have a temptation or tendency to say, that's my enemy. I think that can be an easy thing to fall into in our cultural climate. And even if they are an entity towards you, then we find some way to ignore the command of Jesus to love our enemies. So then we look outside the church and instead of sharing the gospel in our lives, we write people off. Or we look inside the church and instead of pursuing unity or reconciliation, we choose brokenness and division. I wonder if sometimes we become the very thing that we despise when we choose to condemn people and write them off as our enemy instead of having the courage to move towards them. When we miss out on who the true enemy is, we miss out on the objective that we are aligned with. I wonder if when we miss out that the true enemy isn't the person in front of us, that we also miss out on aligning ourselves with the objective of Christ, that all people in all places would be saved, reconciled to God through Christ, and reconciled to one another in Christ. What if aligning with the objective of Jesus actually looks like sharing the gospel in our lives with people we might be tempted to write off? What if part of it is pursuing a unity and a love for one another in an age that is marked by sharp division? My friend Saul has a saying, and it goes something like this. He says that the devil knows your name, but he calls you by your sin, and that Christ knows your sin, but he calls you by your name. Christian, I wonder if when we look at people, which one we're more like, if we call them by their sin or we call them by their name. We should examine ourselves as we look at what Jesus does in the text, how he treats the demon and how he treats the man. The real enemy is addressed, dominated, and dismissed. And as the man encounters Jesus, he is freed, dignified with Jesus, and in his right mind. And I think that dovetails into the second point that we see in the text, which is that Jesus doesn't give up on people. That is good news. Everyone had given up on this guy. He was alone in the tombs. They tried to chain him down. No one could subdue him. It looked like it was over, like it was finished, like it was done, like it was hopeless. But God, Jesus moves towards the hopeless. It's the direction he must travel because his objective is for all people of all places to be saved. It's something we'll keep seeing in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has a tendency to move towards the messy areas of life. You know, there's a kind of faith expression that runs away from evil and darkness for fear that it will be contaminated by it. You look around at the places and people around you and think, I can't be there because I, will I be contaminated by it? Jesus demonstrates the opposite. He moves towards places marked by evil and people bound in darkness with the confidence that he will shine his light into it. He doesn't give up on people, not on this man, and praise God, Doxon, not on us. Jesus does not give up on people So neither should we. I've gotten to see so many of you walk through the fire with people these last year and a half that I've been here. 
And there are way more stories that I haven't, sacrificially serving in secret for the sake of those who are around you. Stories that will never be shared from this stage. Stories that will never see the light of day. Some things that will be between you, that person, and God. Some resolved, some years and months long. Others where it feels like there's no end in sight. I thank God for the resilient love that I've gotten to see in you for one another, for others. For how you model following Jesus. For the way that your life speaks before your words do, that Jesus didn't give up on people, so neither will I. But I want to be tender here because there may be a day when you want to give up. Maybe that day's come, maybe you're in it right now, a day where you simply don't know what to do. You couldn't, you, you're just like, God, couldn't this just be done? Couldn't it just be finished? Couldn't it just be resolved? You start to question him, like, God, do you even care about this anymore? Because there's a limit to what you can do. There's a limit to how much you can give. You're a human, a person designed dependent with limitation. And in that moment, when you hit that limitation, you want to give up. It's likely that you feel out of gas, out of resource, out of steam. So what do you do? I'll go first. When I feel this way, I take time to remind myself of the gospel, and I remember how Jesus didn't give up on me, how he didn't give up on us. I sit in that. I ask the Spirit of God to give me strength for today as I feel weak and bright hope for tomorrow as I feel overwhelmed and underwater. I remember the gospel, and I remember that I'm not Jesus, but I do follow him. That I'm not the Savior, but I do follow him. So if Jesus would move towards this person, I want to be close behind. If Jesus hasn't given up on this person, then I'll do, hear me, what I can. I'll give what I can. I'll serve how I can. I'll try to sacrifice how I can. I'll pray what I've got. I'll say what I can. I'll be as present as they'll let me. I'm not perfect. I miss on this ways and more often than I'm comfortable with or that I like, but I want to just have a rhythm of remembering the gospel and then giving what I've got. So what do you do? You remember the gospel and you do what you can. I'm not asking you to do what you can't do. I'm asking you to do what you can do. I'm not asking you to give what you don't have. I'm asking you to give what you do have, what has come to you through the hands of the Father who is above. With what you do have, don't give up on people. Don't get caught up in what you can't do. What can you do? I just want you to remember your story for a moment because there's likely a few people in this room. Christian, aren't you so glad that someone didn't give up on you? I'm so glad for Romulo da Costa, that Brazilian beast. I love that man. He sat with me when I had questions. He took me to share the gospel before I even believed the gospel. Like, it was wild. Um... He would text me, you stay in pure, and I was like a part of his accountability so often that actually like helped me to lean into the spirit of God to see some things I had been struggling with for years broken in my life and pornography. I thank God that he didn't give up on me. Maybe you've got people like that too. I mean, maybe you actually would hear that and what you think of is a time where you feel like someone gave up on you in the past. That's painful. I'm genuinely sorry that that happened. I wonder, though, if I could shift that question for you just to give you a little bit of breathing room, not to bypass it, but just to give you some breathing room. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't give up on you? Like the perseverance and patience of Christ passing over our former sins so that on the appointed day we might trust in him as Lord and Savior. My sin put me in direct rebellion with God, and he chose to rescue this rebel. 
I'm so glad he didn't give up. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. I'm really glad that you're here if that's you. I, I just want to tell you real quick how I know that Jesus hasn't given up on you. Because you're in the room. <laughs> Some reason, some way, someone brought you here. You wound up here this morning or you're watching online or you're listening to this at some later time and it's our honor to actually get to be a part of reminding you that Jesus has not given up on you simply by the fact that he would see fit to you seeing this, listening to this or being here today. Jesus didn't give up on people so neither should we. We'll do what we can and what we can do is not give up on people that Jesus hasn't given up on because his objective is that all people from all places would be saved. We see this here on the shore, but that's just a stop on the road. We see this from the shore to the cross, moments of Jesus not giving up on people that others had found hopeless. And on the cross, there's an incredible moment where the crowds have turned against Jesus. You might remember, they, they come in, they throw their clothes down, palm fronds on the ground. Jesus is riding in with the colt. This is the king who is coming, and they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And days later, he's hung up on the cross after they've cried, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And in that moment, here's the words that Jesus say as they mock and jeer him on the cross. Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Are you, ki are you kidding me? Guys, it's the Bible. I know like we're, we're in this space, but like let these words shock you because that is shocking. In his dying breath, Jesus asks for those who are actively mocking, sneering, and murdering him to be forgiven. On the cross, while people who followed him are actively abandoning him, actively giving up on him, Jesus doesn't give up on them. He sheds his blood to be the substitutionary sacrifice for all who would believe in him as Lord and Savior. He makes a way for those who do not deserve it to be saved. He doesn't give up on people because he has an objective that all people from all places would be saved. Which is why these last three verses, it's so shocking that Jesus gives this unexpected answer to the man that he rescued. Look at Mark 5 verse 18. And as he was getting into the boat... The man who'd been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. There's a true enemy, and it's not the man in front of them. Jesus doesn't give up on people, and neither should we. And at the end of the story, we see this man becomes an inviter. With just his story and an invitation, Jesus sends him to the Decapolis, right back to where he came from. And if you check the text, this is not what he wanted to do. While Jesus dismisses the demons when they ask, and he leaves when the people beg him to, to this man he's just set free, he says no. It's the only note that Jesus gives in this entire section. Jesus does not permit him to come. I mean, this dude would have been on one as a disciple. Like, just think about, like, your starting five. Isn't this who you want on it as you're following Jesus? Like, like, he understood what Jesus had liberated him from. What could Jesus ask him to do that he would say no to? Further, this dude just wanted a fresh start. Don't make me go back where they know me, Jesus. Let me have a fresh start with you. Can, we can understand at least him asking, right? Who hasn't wanted one of those? Instead, Jesus sends him back to his people. And sends him with an objective. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Picture this going down. That must have been so awkward. 
He walks into the first town, maybe bigger Sarah He doesn't need to introduce himself because people are going like this around homie because they're squinting at him, looking at him and saying, Aren't, isn't that the guy that was like yelling and crying out? When we try to chain him down and he just kept breaking the chains, when we hear his voice, like, like, isn't this that guy? Isn't this the guy that we're supposed to, isn't he, unc- isn't this that guy that is demonically, pres- like, like, isn't this that guy? What's going on? But he looks, he looks, he looks different. He looks calm. He, he looks like he's in his right mind. He's clothed. We haven't seen that for a little bit. What's going on? I wonder if this guy went to the town center or perhaps to the, to the well early in the morning and started to do exactly what Jesus told him to do and told them how much the Lord had done for him and how he's had mercy on him. This man had a story and an invitation. I bet the story went something like this. I know that I was blank, but then Jesus blank, and now blank is true about me. It's as simple as that. That's all he's got. That's what he's got. I was demonically possessed. You're correct. But then Jesus, son of the most high God, came and he set me free. And now I'm cleansed, clothed in my right mind. My dignity has been restored by Jesus. And I'm here to tell you how much he's done for me and the mercy that he has given to me. What started as awkward ends with people being amazed. Here's why. They would have heard him share this story and thought, wait a minute. If that's true about you, could that be true about me? If he's shown you mercy... Could he show me mercy? This man becomes an inviter, and so too should we, Doxa. He had a story and an invitation, and we have at least that much if we're in Christ. But the story does not end here. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes back to the region, and when he does, in verses 55 through 56, we see that the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard that he was. That's interesting. How did they immediately recognize him? How, why did they bring people to him? Because the good news that all people of all places could be saved had made its way into the Decapolis, into this region. And we've got to think that at least in part, the reason for that wasn't social media and it wasn't a text thing and wasn't an email campaign you sign up on because you want to get a little free little ebook. It wasn't any of that. It was this man going and saying, this is how much God's done for me and this is how he's shown me mercy. So when they see Jesus, their recognition leads them to a response of coming to him because perhaps Jesus could do that for me and perhaps he could do that for my family and for my friends he was sent he was an inviter inviting them to know the lord and his mercy simply put the gospel came to him on its way to someone else and docs thousands of years later we're a part of this same movement of the gospel not to simply go to one group of people but to all people in all places to those to, to us and the, the, those who are around us we join in with this man aligning ourselves with the objective of Jesus the gospel came to him on its way to someone else and the gospel has come to us on its way to someone else so that all people in all places might be saved by Jesus Jesus who didn't go from just from one side of the sea to the other but crossed from heaven to earth so that all people of all places could be reached Jesus who would live a perfect life that we couldn't live and die the death that we deserve so that all people could be forgiven and made righteous before God. Jesus, whose blood was shed and body was broken so that all people in all places who trust in him would have peace with God and peace with one another as a part of the formed family of God, joined as one by his blood and by the cross. Jesus, who rose again from the grave so that all people of all places might have everlasting life, resurrection life in him. Jesus, who ascended 
ascended into heaven after he rose from the grave and sent his spirit to fill those who trust in him so that we might have by the spirit of God everything we need to join in and align our lives with the objective of Jesus so that all people in all places might know him, to have assurance of life with God now and into eternity because they hear of what God has done for them in Christ and they hear about the mercy that he's shown for them through Jesus. So to close, just a couple of questions I want to give the room to consider. I'd invite you to close your eyes, bow your head, whatever you need to do for just a moment of focus and concentration for you to think and respond even in prayer. So first, do you know Jesus? If you do, rejoice. If you don't, know this, Jesus has not given up on you. This morning is evidence of it. His desire is for you, a person from a place to be saved, to repent from your sin and to trust in him as Lord and as Savior. You might feel isolated, alone, crying out, harmed, oppressed, or in pain. It might not show in one way on the outside, but you know that it's true on the inside. And just like this man ran to Jesus, you can run to him as well. Our sin separates us from God, and he can save you from that separation into relationship, into salvation. Do you know Jesus? You could put your trust in him today as Lord and Savior. I beg of you to do it. Let today and let this morning not just be a signpost, but a fork in the road where you say, I'm done waiting. I'm done pushing, putting it off. I'm going to put my trust in Jesus because he has come so that me, a person from a place, might be saved. Christian, do you know who the true enemy is or do you treat other people like they are the enemy? If you were to slow down for a second, is there some corner of your heart or mind where there's groups of people that you've written off? Jesus doesn't give up on people, so neither should we. Ask God to help you see the true enemy, to align your life with the objective of Jesus. Are you tired and tempted to give up on someone near you? Ask that you would remember the gospel and do what you can. That you would ask God, that you would pray and that you would come and sit with him and ask for help and ask him to give you the perspective and strength that you need as you look to Jesus to do what you can for those who are around you. I want you to consider who's on the other side of your invitation. This man became an inviter and so too should we. The gospel came to him on its way to someone else and it came to us on its way to someone else. Maybe it starts awkward. Who cares? There are other people on the other side of your invitation, just like there were for this man. What could God do through you as you share the good news of all that Jesus Christ has done for you and the mercy he's shown you through the cross and empty tomb? So we're going to give you a few moments just to sit however you need to respond in prayer. If you need to ask God, if you need to confess, repent, maybe you need to trust him as Lord and Savior today, become a follower of Jesus. You can do that. I want to give you some space to respond, and then we'll sing.